Geico asks, how would you love a chance to save some money on insurance? Of course you would. And when it comes to great rates on insurance, Geico can help. Like with insurance for your car, truck, motorcycle, boat, and RV. Even help with homeowners or renters coverage. Plus, add an easy-to-use mobile app, available 24-hour roadside assistance and more, and Geico is an easy choice. Switch today and see all the ways you could save. It's easy. Simply go to geico.com or contact your local agent today. These days in the National Football League, it seems like owners are taking more chances on black quarterbacks to lead the team now. Most African-Americans quarterbacks are considered running quarterbacks, and it seems like more and more teams are going with that type of play style rather than the old traditional quarterbacks. I mean, you had Doug Wilms, who became the first black quarterback drafted in the first round to win a Super Bowl. Michael Vick was the first black quarterback ever to be selected number one overall. Warren Moon became the first black quarterback inducted into the NFL Hall of Fame. But this episode is about Steve McNair, who became the first black quarterback to win the NFL's MVP award. And on the field, he was an amazing athlete, a true leader, and just an all-around raw talent. But off the field, it's just so sad the way his life would end. Now, let's get into it. Now, Steve McNair was born on Valentine's Day, February 14th, 1973, in Mount Olive, Mississippi. Now, see, growing up, it was very country farm-like where Steve was from. Every day, they had to feed the chickens and the pigs, pick their vegetables. They was very poor. Now, see, Steve had four brothers and was raised by his mother, who worked a lot, but she made sure her boys stayed out of trouble, and his father was really never in his life. And all of them were athletic, especially Steve's older brother, Fred, who was the star quarterback for the high school. Now, by the time Steve became a freshman, he was an all-around star in football, basketball, track, and baseball for the school. He was even offered a contract by the baseball team, Seattle Mariners, to play for them, but his mother wanted him to stay in school and focus on his education. Now, Steve was so good, he was offered a full scholarship to the University of Florida to play defensive back, but Steve wanted to play quarterback, so he chose Alcorn State, a historically black university, because they was the only school that gave him that option to play quarterback, plus it was close to his home. Now, black civil rights activist Mega Elvers, who was shot and killed by the Ku Klux Klan in his driveway, also graduated from that school, Alcorn State. But anyway, now, when Steve got to Alcorn State, he set all types of career records for the school with over 14,000 passing yards, as well as a division record for total offensive yards with 16,000 career yards. That record still stands today. I mean, at Alcorn State, Steve did it all from passing, 
to even leading the team in rushing. In every game, the stadium was filled with fans and celebrities just to see him play. He even won the Walter Payton Award and finished third in voting for the Heisman Trophy Award that year, losing to Rashawn Salam. The hype around Steve was so big at the time, especially in the black community, because in the NFL during those days, there weren't that many black quarterbacks. I mean, you had Randall Cunningham for the Eagles, Warren Moon for the Oilers, then he went to the um, Minnesota Vikings and Rodney P for Detroit, but none of them, to me, had the talent like Steve McNair had, though. But see, Steve was still worried about the NFL because a year before that, Charlie Ward for Florida State won the Heisman Award Trophy, and he still didn't get drafted by an NFL team. So he chose to play basketball. There was a documentary back in the day they made about um, how the NFL takes fewer chances on black quarterbacks than on white ones. Back in the day, I saw. I think one of the NFL players made it. Y'all should definitely check it out. It could be on YouTube. But um, in 1995, though, Steve's dream came true. and He was drafted by the Houston Oilers with the third overall pick making him the highest drafted black quarterback in NFL history at that time. Now, after two years of sitting on the bench, by 1997, Steve became the permanent starting quarterback for the Oilers, finally getting his chance to show his skills. Also that same year, Steve married uh, his college sweetheart, Michelle. Later on, him and Michelle had two sons, and Steve also had two older boys from previous relationships. Two years later after that, the Houston Oilers became the Tennessee Titans after owner Bud Adams couldn't get the new stadium he wanted in Houston. And that 1999 season, Steve led the team to a 13-3 regular season record, taking them all the way to play in Super Bowl 34 only to be defeated by the St. Louis Rams 23-16. But right after that, he signed that new six-year contract worth $50 million with the Tennessee Titans. And during that time, Steve was like God to the state of Tennessee. Everybody loved him. He even started the Steve McNair Foundation to benefit youth charities and hosted his first youth football camp in 1999 at... Um, Mississippi Gulf Coast Community College. Some of the kids that attended the camp over those years became NFL stars like Cam Newton and Vince Young. In 2003, Steve ended up arrested for a DUI and illegal gun possession, but later on, all charges were dropped. Next season, he became the first African-American quarterback to win NFL's MVP award in 2003. He had his best season as a quarterback, throwing for over 3,000 passing yards, 24 touchdowns, and just seven interceptions. Plus, he led the league in quarterback rating with 100.4. Steve and Colts quarterback Peyton Manning were named co-NFL MVPs that year. But, you know, years after that, man, Steve suffered a lot of injuries, which left the Titans no choice but to trade him because they didn't want to pay him. So in 2006... He was traded to the Baltimore Ravens for a fourth-round pick in the 2007 NFL Draft. And on May 9, 2007, Steve was arrested again 
for driving under the influence, even though his brother-in-law was driving his truck. He was a passenger, but under the Tennessee law, a person can still be arrested for a DUI even as a passenger in their own vehicle if the driver is believed to be under influence. But those charges were dropped later too. Now, with all the injuries, plus wanting to spend more time with his kids, in April 2008, after 13 seasons in the NFL, Steve decided to retire from football. So after football, now retired, Steve had opened a restaurant called the Gridiron 9 near the Tennessee State University campus that sold deep fried hot dogs, Cajun catfish sandwiches, and Southern style chicken strips. But what people didn't know was Steve and his wife were having problems in their relationship and was headed for a divorce. Now see, Steve was the one who really wanted the divorce, but his wife wouldn't give it to him because they had signed a prenuptial agreement, which means if they divorce, she will only get $300,000, a house and child support. They had put their 14,000 square foot Nashville home up for sale recently, listed at $3 million. And Steve was living in the condo with his friend, Wayne Neely. Now see, Steve was also seeing a 20-year-old woman named Sahil Kazimi, but her friends called her Jenny. And she was a waitress at the restaurant Dave and Buster's where him and his family often ate. Now, a lot of the staff at the restaurant said everybody knew about their relationship because they didn't hide it. And Steve liked Jenny because she didn't act like a groupie like the rest of the women did. Months into dating, he put a down payment on a Cadillac Escalade for her birthday. He started putting the money in her bank account. He took her on trips to places such as Florida, Hawaii, and Las Vegas. Neighbors say they saw Steve and Jenny together so much that they thought they was already living together. Now see, Steve told Jenny he was divorcing his wife and that it would be finalized soon so they can get married. And, and Jenny was ready. She had put all her stuff up for sale on Craigslist, sold her furniture and everything. But see, the crazy part is, right, Steve was ready to break up with Jenny because she kept calling him when he was with his wife and kids and he was tired of it. Plus, he had another mistress on the side named Leah. And Jenny had caught wind of Steve cheating on her and she wasn't ready to let Steve go. So she began stalking him. She told her friends that she found a tampon in his bathroom trash can and one day she saw another woman leaving Steve's condo, so she followed her. Now, Steve's mistress, a woman named Leah, confirmed that she was having an affair with Steve and said she saw Jenny in the black Escalade following her, circling her block and then parked outside her apartment. Jenny's friends told her that Steve was just playing her, but Jenny was still in love with him and she thought she was pregnant. So she made plans to meet with him in Las Vegas to spend some time, hoping the trip would bring them closer, but Steve never showed up. After feeling embarrassed and being played for a fool, Jenny started doing her own thing, seeing other men. She started seeing a Vanderbilt football player, Tennessee Titans quarterback Vince Young. They hung out a couple times, according to her best friend Emily Andrews, and running back Quentin Gandon and her ex-boyfriend named 
Keith Norfleet. But overall, she couldn't get over Steve and they started to hook back up. And on July 2nd, 2009, Steve and Jenny were heading back home from a night out drinking when she was pulled over for speeding. With bloodshot eyes and alcohol on her breath, she refused a breath test and was charged with a DUI and sent to jail. Now, the cops allowed Steve and his friend, who were in the Escalade at the time, to leave in a taxi. Steve showed up to the jail hours later and post bail for Jenny and then left her to be with his other mistress, Leah. The next day, they say Jenny bought a gun from a man named Adrian Gilliam in the parking lot of the mall where she worked. Now, after work, Jenny texts Steve right and told him she was going to his condo and he told her he would be there shortly. But on July 4th, 2009, Steve was found dead for multiple gunshot wounds twice to the body and twice in the head on each side of his temple. At his feet, Jenny shot once in the head with a gun under her head. Now, Steve's roommate, Wayne Neely, discovered the bodies first and decided to call Steve's friend Robert Gaddy first instead of the police. Now, once Robert Gaddy got there, that's when they called the police 45 minutes later. Now, once the police got there and after they finished investigating the whole scene, police believe Jenny did all of this because she was in debt with bills. She got a DUI two days earlier and found out that Steve was seeing another woman. That's why she shot Steve twice in the chest and twice in the head, then killed herself. Plus, traces of gunpowder residue were found on Jenny's left hand and the gun was found underneath her head. But former Nashville police officer Vincent Hill, who was hired by Steve's mother, Lucille McNair, to investigate his death, doesn't think Jenny was the one that murdered Steve, though. Because when Steve's body was found by friends Wayne Neely and Robert Gaddy, he had only $7 in his pocket. And everybody knew that Steve always carried thousands of dollars on him rubber band wrapped in his pocket. Vincent Hill also wanted to know why Steve's friend Wayne Neely and Robert Gaddy called three other people and waited 45 minutes before dialing 911 when they first found Steve's body. Emily Andrews, a friend and former roommate of Jenny, told police that she had spoken with Steve a couple weeks before the 4th of July murder and said Steve told her that he had fired Robert Gaddy after he discovered $13,000 missing. But Robert Gaddy denied the allegation saying he was never fired and that he and Steve never had a financial dispute and they were like brothers, but did admit he and Steve have not been on good terms lately over a business venture deal with a restaurant. Private investigator Vincent Hill also thinks whoever planned the murder planned it perfectly because the way Steve was shot twice in the chest and once in each temple took too much skill and calculation for someone like Jenny who apparently never fired a gun before. Now the cops did interview Adrian Gilliam, the guy who sold Jenny the gun in the parking lot weeks before. And the story he gave on how they met was she was trying to sell her car. And then she said she was looking to buy a gun. 
So he sold her the gun for $100 because he needed the money. But the second time they interviewed him, he came clean and admitted that he and Jenny had known each other for weeks and he'd been to apartment twice. He also said they weren't lovers, but they did flirt, text, and call each other all the time. They had exchanged more than 200 calls weeks before the murder-suicide, including 49 texts and calls the day before. He was charged with being a convicted felon in possession of a firearm and sentenced to two and a half years for selling Jenny that gun. Now, Jenny's nephew told police that they should look into Jenny's ex-boyfriend named Keith Norfleet as being a suspect because on the day that Steve and Jenny's bodies were discovered, Keith Norfleet admitted that he had been by the condo that very day and said he was looking for her. He also put some rap songs about killing Jenny and Steve McNair because he was jealous of their relationship, but the cops cleared him as being a suspect though. Now, a lot of Steve's family and friends said they knew nothing of Jenny before the shooting. And according to Michelle McNair, Steve's wife of 12 years, she said she had no idea that Steve was involved with another woman until the murder. But she did know some other people and some other things, but didn't know about Jenny, though. The crazy part is Steve didn't have a will, so his widow, Michelle McNair, was named administrator of the estate. But the truth is, Steve did have wills drafted two or three times before his death, but never signed them. And when the family asked Steve's agent named Bus Cook about the wills, he claimed he can't find them. They had been lost. Once his wife Michelle took control of the estate, she filed a lawsuit against his mother, Lucille McNair, saying she had to pay $3,000 a month for the 45-acre six-bedroom ranch that her son Steve built for her forcing her out of her own home. Only if Steve would have had that will, man, all this could have been avoided. But you know, years later, Michelle and Lucille have gotten closer. They squashed the beef, all the problems, and now they're on good terms, which is, I think, is good for the kid's sake, you know. Now, Officer Vincent Hill also presented a complaint to the grand jury requesting that Steve McNair's case be reopened but later was told that there wasn't enough new evidence to reopen the case. I mean, man, there's just so much more to this case that I I just didn't touch up on. But um, for more information on this case, Sports Illustrated did a podcast series hosted by Tim Rohan called Fall of a Titan, the Steve McNair story. Y'all definitely need to check that out. I'm telling y'all, it will blow y'all mine I'm gonna put the link in the description for y'all to check it out he was 36 years old R.I.P Steve McNair Geico asks how would you love a chance to save some money on insurance of course you would and when it comes to great rates on insurance Geico can help like with insurance for your car, truck, motorcycle, boat, and RV. Even help with homeowners or renters coverage. Plus, add an easy-to-use mobile app, available 24-hour roadside assistance and more, and GEICO is an easy choice. Switch today and see all the ways you could save. It's easy. Simply go to GEICO.com or contact your local agent today.